Welcome to The Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. Welcome to The Sages Among Us. I'm Lori Burkhart-Frank, and I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest tonight, Brian Bisnett, land use planner and landscape architect, visionary, collaborator, and steward of the land. Brian, welcome to Sages Among Us. Thank you, Lori. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm so excited to get to know more about you. I've, I've heard you make some great presentations, and we're going to get into uh, some of the projects that you're very passionate about. But I wanted to know a little bit more about you as a person. Where did you grow up, Brian? Well, all over, uh, but uh, mainly in California. I'm a California boy. I was born in Carmel Valley. It said on my birth certificate that my dad was a farmer. Uh, he raised, he and his father raised hay in Carmel Valley. And then we had a trout farm in Carmel Valley. And uh, then they moved up to, uh, they kind of moved around quite a bit, chased the opportunities, and I had no choice but to go along. And uh, ended up down up in Tahoe for a while, back down in Sonora, back in Carmel Valley. And then we moved from the country to uh, the suburbs, the, the fringe of the suburbs down in, in the Santa Clara Valley. My dad stopped being a farmer and became an uh, electronic engineer uh, and had a startup. So that kind, of, uh, that kind of is the arc of his career, which was pretty widespreading. And uh, so then we ended up in Los Gatos and finally Watsonville and Santa Cruz. But as I was growing up, it was always on the edge of the suburbs. So I was always close to the country that was being swallowed up by those suburbs. So I had a very developed a fondness for the land at that stage, but as well as a sense of its impermanence because uh, the orchards that I was looking at were just uh, vestiges of what formerly had been. Well, I'm already getting a better uh, feel for uh, this project that we're going to talk about later and, and, and what uh, some of the early maybe uh, uh, turning points for you. But what kind of activities were you involved in as a child? Well, I was. Uh, my mom was convinced that you could either be a, a brain or a jock, and she was determined that I was a brain and not a jock. So she convinced me I was pretty uncoordinated at an early <laughs> age. So uh, sports were out of the question except for you know, street sports, uh, uh, which I enjoyed quite a bit. But I think the earliest passions were, were fishing, astronomy, uh, library. Uh, I, was a, I was a fan of spending a day in a library and coming home with uh, as many books as I could carry and then reading them and going back the next week for more. So I think I think probably fishing, astronomy, and, and the library covered it pretty well. Well, it sounds like a nice balance. Uh, and and what were some of your earliest passions? I mean, were those, that, that was part of the whole things that you were passionate about? Uh, yeah, quite a bit, I think. And then the... Uh, I ended up being a, a, a traveling salesman as a, as a kid and spent a lot of time because um, I couldn't, my folks wouldn't buy me the 10-speed bike that I really wanted, let alone the telescope. So uh, I spent a lot of time selling Christmas cards and kitchen knives door to door um, as a kid as well. And, uh, and, the, uh, and then aside from that, it was the usual stuff, kind of playing with my friends, a lot of, of make-believe, and, uh, and uh, tormenting my sisters was kind of a, a full-time. Well, okay. there's so many 
follow-up questions there, but did you get your 10-speed and your telescope? I did get the 10-speed. I got a telescope, a beautiful telescope, and I just, I'll just i never forget the first time I pointed at what I thought, the star that I might thought might be Saturn, and I looked in that in the eyepiece and saw those rings for the first time, and it sent chills up and down my spine just as a kid. It made a, I never forgot that, so I was sure at that point I'd become an astronaut. Wow, fascinating. Um, so what were, well, you, you already talked about some of your first jobs, and it seems like you've got some entrepreneurial uh, blood in you, too, maybe from your dad. Um, but, you know, that inspiration to become a door-to-door salesperson as a kid, what other kind of jobs did you have? Okay, well, I was a janitor, a high school janitor for a while, uh, and, and then became a elevator operator at the Hotel Rest Star in Watsonville, which was, I think, one of the great jobs because I could work full-time in high school. I'd get there at 3 o'clock and leave at 8, 11 o'clock at night. And there were uh, very few, uh, some days were very slow, so I could read two books a night. So it was, for a reader, it was just about the perfect. Are you a speed reader? Uh, pretty fast, I guess. But I just had a lot of books that I wanted to read, so that was the perfect job. The downside of the job is there were a lot of elderly people at the hotel, so you had to be very accurate with your placement of the elevator because it was a very old-school manual elevator. And occasionally my aim would be off. Maybe I hadn't gotten enough sleep or whatnot, or I was thinking about other things. So I tripped a fair amount of my clients, uh, but, uh, but it, was, it was still a, a great job to have in high school. Wow, that's just so, so interesting. And, and what were some of the lessons that you learned from those early jobs? Well, part of it was, I think, uh, I learned to, I really learned that it was kind of fun to work. It was more fun to work and try and do a good job than it was to try and find ways to get out of working. So, and and I think it's probably a little hackneyed to say, but did learn to be a little proud of what I was able to accomplish at the end of the day. And I did learn early on that my folks weren't going to buy me most of the stuff that I wanted, so I really had to make the money and, and earn it myself, which I think was probably a, uh, an important one. And I think it probably teed me up well for later life because I've always said I come from a long line of employable biznets, unemployable biznets, uh, because uh, <laughs> my father, my his father before him, and as far back as I think, uh, we're all pretty much self-employed. I think we're just... Uh, didn't I think it said on my? Uh, I remember a kindergarten report card uh, um, uh, about my inability to follow instructions. So I think that probably had a lot to do with the fact that I had no choice but to work for myself. Is, uh, yeah, we will get to that. Um, but did you have uh, a career path planned out um, besides it, the astronaut? <laughs> if it if it was, it was a bit of a spiral. So I think because I, in high school I was a math and science kid and uh, kind of a, a whiz and went through a lot of college algebra when I was still in in high school and was convinced that I was going to be a, a scientist or an, or an inventor, a, a hugely wealthy inventor, I think, was my was my main career plan. And then in, uh, something happened in, the, uh, in high school, around mid-high school. It might have had something to do with the fact I graduated high school in 1970, so it was the the later 60s, but there were a lot of distractions of one kind or another at that time, and I got pretty distracted and thought maybe by the time I went to college, uh, uh, when uh, I applied to just um, Stanford and UC Santa Cruz, my parents insisted I apply to Stanford, and I applied to UC Santa Cruz. They'd heard UC Santa Cruz was pretty much um, um, 
sex music and rock and roll. And I'd heard that Santa Cruz was sex music and rock and roll as well, so I thought it was a pretty good idea. Uh, but And I also felt it was a pretty safe bet because I had a feeling, even though my folks had some connections, that I wasn't going to get into Stanford anyway. So sure enough, it was UC Santa Cruz, and I loved it up there. I mean, I had a great time. Um, I'd gone to high school in Watsonville and then went from there to Santa Cruz. And I loved it. I got the liberal arts education, which... I realized set me up for doing one of two things when I graduated. I could either uh, become a lawyer or become a ski bum, and uh, I elected to become the ski bum. It was partly to prove to my mom that I was not that uncoordinated, so I spent a few years in Tahoe and uh, with a um, an A-frame by the lake uh, as a caretaker, uh, which was a, a beautiful job. I just be, would be alone for weeks at a time up there with me, just me and my dog. And wow. In, and the second season up there was me, my dog, and my girlfriend, who later became my wife, because having her up there in a little cabin in Tahoe really sealed the deal. So. I, I sure bet it did. That sounds pretty romantic and wonderful. Uh, so did you have any special mentors uh, early on? Uh, well, not early on, I'd say, uh, except for uh, in terms of the kind of trying to follow the circuitous career path is – uh, because I was a caretaker, and when I gave up that job, it was such a good job, but I needed another one, so I traded jobs with my brother-in-law, who was a landscape gardener in Carmel. And so we just went, moved down to Carmel, took over his route, and then uh, became landscape gardeners, and I worked with my wife. We've worked together all our working life, and um, then became a landscape contractor, and then became a general contractor. It's pretty much just one thing following another, and then realized I liked to design, so went back to school to become a landscape architect. And then several years later, realized I liked landscape architecture so much, uh, or wanted to do larger and larger landscapes, so became a, I went back to school again, to, um, I'm kind of a recurring, that's a, a repeat offender when it comes to schooling, uh, but then uh, I got a land use planning uh, certificate and became a certified land use planner just because I was interested in the larger landscapes that you saw in urban and rural planning, and it was back in the day when they were coming up, up with the plan, uh, revisiting the general plan in Nevada County. And so that was a real opportunity to get involved in that. And then subsequently, after later adventures, I went back to school again and got a broker's license in real estate because I was getting involved in land so many ways. So I've kind of a fold-out business card. Well, and, I like it. Well, what did bring you to Nevada County from Carmel? Um, well, it's the, the best of all possible reasons. I followed my wife up here. Uh, we were living in Carmel. We were doing landscape architecture and design building Carmel, and that's a pretty rarefied atmosphere to do landscape architecture. We were able to work on uh, yards where the clients would be spending hundreds, literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, although uh, we really wanted to get our own piece of land, and we priced land in Carmel Valley, and we priced land in Grass Valley, and obviously there was a Grass Valley one out on the economic analysis, but it's where my wife was from. She grew up here. Her uh, parents were one of the Quakers that founded John Woolman School, and her father was one of the first principals of John Woolman. So we bought, were able to buy land adjacent to her folks who had this, have this beautiful parcel of land in, in South Nevada County and were uh, kind of teachers right down the street and could bike down from their garden to the school and back again. And it was really a beautiful we just wanted to be here, and so we bought land back in the 70s, but moved up here in about 1990. 
Well, that I can understand because that's uh, moving up here is the best place to be. Uh, you're listening to Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart Frank, and I'm talking to Brian Business Biznet, who's a land use planner, landscape architect, visionary, collaborator, and steward of the land. Well, um, what goes into being a land use planner and landscape architect. You're talking about this business card of all these different certificates and trainings, um, but but can you sum up what the essence of it is? Well, I think landscape architecture is fascinating because it's really, uh, uh, you need to know a little bit about an awful lot of things. Um, it might have been a uh, I th- I've been told uh, belatedly that maybe attention deficit disorder to some degree might have factored into it. My mother always said, and she was fond of saying these kind of things to me, that I was a jack-of-all-trades, a master of none. I told said, Mom, couldn't we just say Renaissance man and be done with it? But she wasn't <laughs> going to go for that. But, the, uh, but I do appreciate the way it brings together a lot of different professions, uh, engineering, and again, I still have that scientist engineer in me that's that wants to get out so in terms of grading and surveying and doing a lot of uh, drainage design and stuff like that it gets technical and, and very interesting and i like knowing enough to do some of those designs myself where it's appropriate or work well with the civil engineers and surveyor partners that we work with and that's fascinating but then you have the artistic aspect where you can just, uh, you need to visualize, envision something. You need to list, be able to listen to your client, look at the land, look at the everything that surrounds the land, be it neighbors or be it regulations, and, and have something come up and, uh, and be able to communicate that vision uh, to them. And then um, just the fact that to really do it well, you really need to, to know the land. And I think the, uh, it was a Japanese uh, tradition that you needed to take tea for 30 sunrises on the land before you could even put pencil to paper or Ooh, begin to design. That's and poetic. That's it, nice. Isn't that beautiful? And, that is and great. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm more of a coffee drinker, so it, <laughs> uh, but I've, I've, I've adapted that myself. But it, it is true that the more, and I found that you know, particularly with the bigger subsequent projects, that the, the visions just keep on changing and improving. It can almost be disconcerting because you kind of wonder, you know, you can't really dedicate. Well, unfortunately, you can dedicate decades to projects, I guess. We've proved that, but, um, but it's not always practical. But just to, to really get to know the land and let it really uh, speak to you and, and re- be able to respond with, with a design that could be there for years to come is, is, is humbling and, and an incredible opportunity. Well, I know you have over 30 years experiences ex- of experience in all phases of urban and rural land planning and more. Can you tell us about the diversity of projects you've worked on? Well, pretty pretty amazingly diverse. As I said, in, in Carmel, we were able to work on very high-end residential projects, which was uh, rewarding because they could have budgets to meet your vision. So it was an opportunity to be very creative. Then in Nevada County, we would be able to do all scales of things. Uh, for example, back when they were doing the special development areas, we were able to do master plans for things like Kinney Ranch, which was a plan that we were very proud of, of mixed-use development, uh, over 500 acres, and uh, I think would have worked out real well, although it was the wrong project at the wrong time. Um, similarly, uh, some other d- different mixed-use projects where 
uh, it was really a question of how can you get a variety of, of uses that will support one another and, and provide the community uh, what they need as well as the developer what they need and, and still make it work. I was involved at the same time with the uh, Rural Quality Coalition, which was, as I mentioned, we were, Nevada County was in the throes of its uh, debates over, uh, and I think debate is the polite word, over the general plan, and uh, got in seriously involved with the Rural Quality Coalition to kind of uh, try and encourage or we, we saw the process as moving too fast and, and not the neighborhoods not having an adequate voice in the project. And so the, uh, we got, I got fully, fully involved and engaged, but that process was so, uh, um, it was draining. We, we, I thought we succeeded very well and, and really made sure that voices that wouldn't have been heard were heard in, in creating a plan that we could live with. And that was really an extension of the, the land use planning that I had, had studied and aspired to. And to be able to see it make a change in our community was really gratifying. Uh, it was also a very worrying and adversarial process. And there was a lot of unpleasantness. And as a landscape architect and a designer, I wanted to try and work with see if we could, if there was a way to create consensus through good design, I think was the design. So I pulled back a bit from my political involvement, although as we say in Nevada County, you, uh, you, your past never is very far behind. Uh, uh, they call it, the term I think was Irish Alzheimer's, where you forget everything but the grudge. And that's, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, uh, I found that to be true. But I started trying to work on these other projects to see if design we could, could satisfy uh, the need to conserve our land, protect our resources, still provide housing, uh, still provide stimulus for our economy. How could you? How could we find win-wins? And uh, it's it's a tricky and elusive project. One of the projects I'm proudest of, I think, is Rattlesnake Ridge, where we were able to convince the developer to take less density than need be. We were able to condense the size of the parcels so to cluster them on a portion of it, create a large amount of open space and some trail connectivity going into Empire Park. And that's a project that actually got built. Uh, there was a period of time where there were a lot of projects being designed, but uh, then the economy got tricky and not many of them did not get built. And that was the kind of the sobering thing of the profession is to see that you can build these beautiful visions, but so often they don't come to fruition. And that's just the way it is. Well, I've heard you talk about the Excelsior project over the years. What is it and how did you first get involved in it? Okay, well, I first stumbled upon this piece of property in 2003 and uh, took it on as a two-year project and I'm still about halfway through it. So that, that tells you about how quickly things go. And how big is the is this? The property is 1,500 acres totally. Uh, it's to in total, it's a couple of uh, different pro it was a, a ranch that was intact from the uh, when it was a hydraulic mine during the gold rush and the uh, and it gone through quite a few iterations uh, the they save in the development business community not to uh, the one thing you don't want to do is fall in love with the land because that just makes for crummy business decisions and I've certainly uh, been a repeat offender on that one as well and I just this piece of land just blew me away it was a uh, uh, the 
combination of historic and, and natural resources on there were unparalleled. And the fact that it was just off Highway 20, just off Mooney Flat Road, roads I've driven by thousands of times and had no idea what was there. And actually talked to neighbors who live a stone's throw away, and they have no idea it's there as well because it had been behind gates. And I was, uh, the Yuba River ran through it. And a uh, part of the Yuba River, the lower Yuba River that I'd never seen, a portion of Deer Creek abutted it, a portion of Deer Creek I'd never seen before, just strikingly beautiful. Uh, the more I explored the land, uh, the more I discovered there was to discover uh, in terms of uh, the, well, how the cliffs got there, where those stone, why were all those stone walls there, what were the, where are all these wetlands, these ponds, these incredible tunnels, these ditches, uh, the property owner at the time, it was being, um, it was a quarry operator who was going out of business and the hard money lender who'd lent him the money. And so they brought me in to design a hundred homes to, uh, on a portion of it. And I looked at the land and said, well, we could cluster them maybe and save it. Maybe I can, I can do this. We can design anything. So I kept on designing, trying to find something that would work. And the more I designed, the more I discovered about the history of the land, the Excuse me. The incredible, uh, the scale of the hydraulic mining that had blown half the mountain away and blown it through the tunnels and into the rivers, which were still lined with cobbles. Uh, there was just so much to learn about it, and um, and still I was being pressured because the land had a tremendous amount of debt on it to come up with this design for something that was. Uh, I was increasingly feeling like it was not practical or not the best use of the land. Why don't you get a, cla- a sip of water, Brian? And, and I just uh, want to let listeners know that this project that Brian's talking about is is something, as he said, he started many, many years ago and uh, just took a cor- extraordinary vision to see this project that was basically a business that was going out of business, looking somehow to save itself, and uh, you were able to, as you say, you shouldn't have done, but fall in love with this land and begin to see other possibilities for it. Well, we did, and I was I was blessed by circumstance. My partners and I, I became a partner because they couldn't afford to pay for all the design work that the project was requiring. And um, before we could really uh, come to uh, serious disagreements on the future of the land, uh, the crash happened, 2008 happened. Uh, one of the partners actually ended up going to jail because of the uh, the hard money lender because of some of the improprieties. Uh, the other one went bankrupt, and I was left holding the property with a tremendous amount of debt and unsure what to do about it. But the one thing I felt is that if I could show people the land, if I could take them on on tour of the land, if I could, if they could see something of what I saw of the um, of the incredible diversity of the the cliffs, the ponds, the river, the the ruins that I found out, I found out there was the town of Sucker Flat. There it was the one of the largest hydraulic operations in the state, and millions of dollars worth of gold were. We're being mined from that area. Well, what's fascinating to me, though, Brian, is that there was there was no guidebook to this. There was no uh, information that was handed to you. You had to to gather this 
information about the land piece by piece, and how did you do that? Well, by giving people, listening to people, and I would invite people, uh, be it geologists, historians, biologists, birders, uh, anyone who, the people that I, I brought to the land because I wanted to share it with them, and I wanted to get their ideas for what we could do and how we could build a team that could possibly save it. And every person I took taught me something. I could, I would learn. Yeah, it, it's just amazing how many people you you involved in this. Yeah, and the the tradition, and then I would have to find things out because as I pe- took people, they would ask me questions. I need to answer them in the Gold Rush tradition. Um, if I didn't know the answer, I'd make something up, and so the history of the land would would build at that point. But what I realized is the. Um, there was a possibility. I think you asked about mentors earlier. And, yes. And I'll throw out a name right now, a, a friend I was working with quite closely and, and uh, quite involved with was, was John Olmsted, who created the vision for the uh, South Yuba River State Park, Bridgeport. Uh, and he taught me also, uh, he was uh, a wonderful, crazy man who would fall in love with land and basically put money on it. Uh, borrow money, put money on it, sign anything, make promises, and figure out a way to make it happen. I tried to bring a little more practicality to that, but that's what we did as well. We talked to people. I, I took out loans to uh, forestall foreclosure. We made, uh, when the adjacent property pe- became available uh, after it had been purchased by Robinson Enterprises, we went to them and took out an option to buy the property borrowed massive amounts of money from friends to and tried to take more people on tours until finally the Trust for Public Land stepped in to buy a portion of the property. The Berryuba Land Trust, at that time the Nevada County Land Trust, stepped in with a grant and bought another portion of the property. Uh, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife stepped in to buy another portion of the property. Uh, I then subdivided a small portion of it so that we could pull out 11 parcels to create enough money to pay off some of the debt that the property had that I had both inherited. And, and, and unfortunately, this happens every time I get to hear about this project. We are coming up on the on the end of the show. But I do want to, for people who are interested in, in the general area where it is, uh, they could go hiking out out nearby, and where would that be? There are marvelous, marvelous hikes. The Berryuba Land Trust website is the best site to to find the uh, the plan for the blacks, the uh, uh, parking lots for the Black Swan Trail ponds and trail. That's half of the hydraulic operation, and the the trail that they've created around there is amazing, and it's a great two hour walk. But then, if you look on their site as well, you can continue on down to the river. There's an incredible amount of exploring. Yeah, it's just, it, it's amazing what, what one person can do, you know, the vision that you held for this property, and then the people that you brought in and have collaborated with, I mean, that that is, you are such a steward of the land and such a visionary, and, you know, I just applaud you in, in this incredible project that you've taken on. Well, it couldn't have been done, I mean, it just took so many people, I couldn't talked to the friends who had faith in me to lend me the money and saw something of what I saw in the land, but then to have the Trust for Public Lands, the Bear Yuba Land Trust, the Yuba Water Agency, the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, uh, all these uh, people and organizations that were able to step forward and, and contribute. Uh, 
it took a bit of serendipity and some miracles, and we still have a way to go. But the uh, uh, it's it's worth every moment of it, and it's really a blessing to me. I couldn't think of a better way to spend two decades of my <laughs> life. Uh, uh, although if I'd have been thinking about it in advance, I might have <laughs> might have thought otherwise. But well, it it, it is a true tribute uh, to to all of humanity, but also to you. And I, and I do think um, I still have not hiked that area and I'm going to have to do it because I, every time I hear you speak about it, I just know how beautiful it is. Let's go out there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just, just in this last minute, um, I, you know, if you, if you could uh, have the power to change something, to improve something in our community or solve a problem, what is it that you would, would like to see done? I would just like to see us talk to one another. I think what I learned coming out of the adversarial areas uh, era of the uh, 2000s here and then moving into what we <clears throat> built in, uh, down at the bl- Blue Point is that if we talk to each other, there's we have so much in common, there's so much that we can accomplish. If we can focus on a common cause and focus a little less on the l- trivial parts of our life and our belief systems that we disagree and we can get anything done and uh, we have a great community to do it in well we certainly do brian and and i want to thank you tonight my guest tonight has been brian bisnett land use planner and landscape architect visionary collaborator and steward of the land thank you for joining us brian the purpose of this program is to inspire and invite people to participate in the betterment of our community. Discover how you can make a difference by tuning in Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. Next Wednesday, join Sage's host, Kim Ewing. You've been listening to Sages Among Us on KVMR. I'm Lori Burkhart-Frank. Thanks for listening to us, and thanks for everything you do to make our community great.